the impacts of California's AB5 legislation. The Federal Rail Administration weighs in on train cab crew size. And just how bad are the supply chain disruptions we have seen? Pull up a chair and join us as the editors of DC Velocity discuss these stories, as well as news and supply chain trends on this week's Logistics Matters podcast. Hi, I'm Dave Maloney. I'm the Group Editorial Director at DC Velocity. Welcome. Logistics Matters is sponsored by Honeywell Intelligrated. From system design and simulation to integrated warehouse automation software and technologies to ASRS shuttles and robotics, Honeywell Intelligrated's end-to-end solutions address the most pressing e-commerce and labor challenges facing our industry. Find out more at sps.honeywell.com. As usual, our DC Velocity senior editors, Ben Ames and Victoria Kickham, will be along to provide their insights into the top stories of this week. But to begin today, California's Assembly Bill No. 5, known as AB5, was approved a couple of years ago and basically redefines how the contract labor classification works in the Golden State. Its implementation was delayed in court appeals until just a couple of weeks ago and soon will go into effect. How will it and other pending legislation impact the supply chain industry? To find out, here is Victoria with today's guest. Victoria? Thank you, Dave. Yes, our guest today is Chris Shimoda, Senior Vice President of Government Affairs for the California Trucking Association. Uh, As you say, he's here to talk about AB5 and its effects on trucking and the broader supply chain, as well as some other uh, legislative issues we should be watching. Welcome, Chris. Thank you for having me on, Victoria. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Um, So the truck driver protests um, that we saw, I think it was last week, that blocked the Port of Oakland have cleared, but truckers continue their campaign against uh, AB5. I wondered if you could give us sort of a a brief history of the issue and and tell us, you know, where it stands right now. Sure. Uh, So for decades, the state of California's worker classification test was governed by something known as the Borello Standard. Uh, This was a multi-factor test, uh, the primary factor of which was the right to direct or control a worker uh, by the hiring entity. Um, In 2018, the California Supreme Court issued um, an opinion known as the Dynamics Decision, uh, which uh, did away with the prior uh, worker classification test and instituted um, something known as the ABC test, The ABC test is a three-prong test, uh, the problematic part of which is known as the B-prong, which is the part of the test that says that a worker must be outside the usual course of business of a hiring entity, um, which essentially eliminated uh, independent contractor work in many industries. Um, And so the California Trucking Association actually filed um, its first piece of litigation Um, on this issue in the fall of 2018. Um, And subsequent to that, uh, the California legislature reconvened. And on the first day of that uh, 2019 legislative session, Assembly Bill 5 was introduced, uh, which would have extended the ABC test to all facets of California, both tax and labor and employment law. And despite very heavy opposition from independent truckers, I'd say maybe 75 to 90% of the witnesses uh, who testified against the law were independent truckers. Um, AB5 was passed in 2019 with just a very narrow exemption 
uh, for truckers operating in the construction industry, uh, but with over 100 exemptions uh, that were put into the bill for other industries. And so um, at that point, uh, California Trucking Association amended our complaint um, to file for a preliminary injunction uh, to try to stop the application of AB5 um, from going into effect. And a federal district court in California did issue that injunction, uh, which was then overturned by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals um, last summer. Uh, but the court did allow this preliminary injunction to remain in place uh, pending an appeal to the United States Supreme Court, which uh, we, we did file that cert petition. Uh, which was considered um, throughout this past session, but uh, we found out on June 30th of 2022 uh, that the Supreme Court did ultimately deny the cert, uh, cert petition in our case, as well as two other uh, Ninth Circuit preemption cases uh, dealing with the Ninth Circuit's outlier interpretation of, of federal preemption. And so where things stand today is that the injunction has lifted and AB5 can be enforced, which has led to those widespread uh, protests from the independent truckers that you've referenced over the past several weeks. So what are the next, uh, what are the next steps? When does, uh, my understanding is that, that it, um, the law's not being enforced just yet. I mean, when do you expect that to happen? And you know, what are truckers gonna do and what, what does CTA do at this point? Sure, so as of today, there is nothing preventing um, either the state of California, uh, within the law, there is also um, enforcement uh, authority provided to uh, both city and county uh, attorneys as well. Um, in addition to the state of California has uh, private right of action laws for uh, labor and employment um, issues. And so there is nothing preventing um, either litigation or state enforcement of the law as of today, which is Know, why suddenly uh, independent truckers are protesting a law that was uh, passed in 2019. Um, and so uh, from a legal standpoint, uh, the effect of the, the United States Supreme Court um, denying the petition was that the lawsuit was returned uh, to that federal district court for further hearings on the merits um, as we went up the process on this preliminary injunction um, and so as of today, our member leadership has directed us to continue the legal proceedings. And so we are working with our council uh, to recalibrate in light of uh, where the Ninth Circuit is on this issue. And are independent truckers in California sort of operating as usual or starting to figure out what they need to do next? Is that pretty much what's happening? Yeah, it, it has been a mixed bag, depending on who you are talking to. And, and this is one of the, the real issues here is that um, the law is extremely complicated with respect to how an independent trucker might uh, potentially be able to continue their business. Um, the only real clear pathway, um, and I've spoken to all the top transportation lawyers in the country on this, um, is that, you know, you essentially give up your dream of starting your own business and accept a traditional employment arrangement, um, or you pick up stakes and move out of the state of California uh, to avoid the application of the California law. And that, that is, in many cases, what you are seeing um, anecdotally 
Um, I just uh, was at a member's facility this week uh, where I found that two of uh, the owner operators they have had uh, working relationships for quite some time um, did make the decision to leave the state to continue operating as an independent. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, why this is such an important issue for the rest of um, the country to watch? It's obviously gotten a lot of media attention, you know, within supply chain, but also, you know, in the mainstream, um, you know, what, why is that so important for us and, and what other implications, I guess, to the broader supply chain? So 80% of all goods are moved by truck. Um, by far the most dominant mode of goods movement um, in, in the United States. And so a, a thing to understand about the way that products um, are delivered to consumers um, is that you know, trucking relies upon a vast system of small fleets. Um, in some cases, pure independent truckers, um, in others, small fleets that rely upon other small fleets um, and owner operators to get goods delivered. And we estimate that at least one third of California's in-state truckers are directly impacted by AB5. And so um, we can't say, you know, anything with specificity. The law is still shaking itself out, but it is more likely than not that AB5 results in more supply chain delays, higher costs, worsen inflation, you know, not to mention the personal toll that um, the law is taking on these independent truckers. Um, I, I don't think that uh, anybody would willfully want to leave the state of California to continue their business, if not for this law. And so it, it is, uh, the impacts are wide ranging uh, both on, in terms of impact to consumers as well as the small business entrepreneurs. Yeah, it certainly seems that way. Uh, what other um, legislative issues um, in your state um, are you watching that that maybe the rest of the industry should keep an eye on as well? We often say, you know, things that happen in California seem to spread uh, to the rest of the country. So I wonder if you could point out what what other issues you're watching closely. Uh, yeah, there, there. In addition to AB5, there is what what I'm calling a historic transformational regulation being proposed this year by our air quality regulator, uh, known as the California Air Resources Board. Um, may be familiar to your listeners as um, the uh, Air Board is the only entity in the country that can set these types of environmental rules aside from the federal EPA. Uh, because California um, has a waiver from the EPA to do so. And so what is being proposed uh, by the Air Board, it's set to be adopted in October of this year, um, is a rule that would require the transition away from internal combustion uh, trucks, both diesel, natural gas, gasoline, um, to zero emission technologies such as pure battery electric or hydrogen fuel cell and that regulation is calling for that transition to occur as early as 2024, including the fleet that services California's uh, marine ports. And so um, the issue here is not a lack of support for uh, the technology and, and moving in a cleaner direction. It's really that we're at the very early stages of the development of uh, this technology, very limited uh, charging infrastructure, 
uh, less range than what you get from your traditional diesel or natural gas trucks, uh, increased weights so that um, the per truck cargo payloads will go down. You're gonna need more trucks at greater costs to deliver the same products. Uh, drivers could theoretically at today's charging speeds need two to four hours per shift to charge their trucks. And so th this is gonna have a profound effect on the way that the uh, trucking part of the supply chain uh, works in the state of California. Is there anything that can be done to sort of, uh, you know, sort of slow this down or have a more, uh, you know, balanced approach? Uh, how is how is that going to play out, do you think? You know, I'd say that um, the attitude has traditionally been, uh, because there's no lack of regulation already in place in the state of California, but the attitude has always been, no matter what we throw at the supply chain, um, we're going to take it in stride and continue to keep it's flowing. Uh, but if we've learned anything from the past two years, um, it should be that the modern supply chain is extremely complex and interconnected and the system can slow down or even be ground to a halt when pieces of it stop working and i'm extremely concerned that california policymakers may not have fully absorbed what is happening um, in today's supply chain and if these policies are enacted without a lot of care i mean we really need to be thoughtful about how these technologies are deployed what other uh, support needs to be done with respect to our electric infrastructure, that these are potential game changers for the way that the supply chain works in our state, and I would say not in a good way. Um, just to, to wrap up here, so what, um, you know, what, is, what is CTA doing to sort of address that issue as we move into, I think you said October was, uh, was the time that this was gonna start happening. What, um, what's, what's on your agenda for now? So we continue to have discussions with the California Air Resources Board, uh, both at the uh, executive management level, their governing board, to continue to try to inform them that, you know, we do believe that there is a place for this technology, predominantly in your final mile delivery uh, sector, where you have trucks returning to a home base every night, um, have many hours to charge unattended, uh, that is really the place where, uh, especially battery electric technology, can get a foothold um, at this point in time. But um, once you start looking at things like, uh, for instance, in the regulation, over-the-road sleeper tractors are included in the rule. Um, when you start talking about those types of trucks, uh, the, the world experts in advanced technologies um, you know, on the fleet side, just do not have a clear pathway for integrating those technologies into their operations. And so we're gonna continue trying uh, to be supportive of getting a rule on the books that can work. Uh, we'll support the advancement of the technology and really create a true working market uh, for zero emission technology. Certainly a lot of a lot for us to keep, uh, keep an eye on and keep watching. So uh, thank you. Uh, and thank you so much for joining us today, Chris. We really appreciate your time. Great, my pleasure. Thank you, Victoria. We've been talking with Chris Shimoda of the California Trucking Association. Back to you, Dave. Thank you, Chris and Victoria. Now let's take a look at some of the other supply chain news from the week. 
And Ben, you wrote this week about controversial proposals on the number of crew members required to be in the cabs of trains. Can you share the details? Sure, Dave. Uh, we also saw some in increasing discussions this week about the intersection of uh, labor and technology and logistics efficiencies in transportation, also on the rails. Uh, we've been talking about it in trucking, of course, uh, but in, you know, in rails, it's one of the oldest transportation modes in operation, but in recent years, we've seen a whole lot of technology uh, come to the rail sector. Uh, for instance, uh, better tracking of the loads, uh, precision scheduled railroading, positive train control, uh, better integration of intermodal shipments. Uh, but as all those changes have rolled out, the rail industry has also seen a reduced need to have human workers on its trains. And this week, the federal government announced a plan that would require at least two employees on each train. Now, that's not a new idea. It's, it's something that's also known as crew redundancy, uh, and it's been around for a few years. Back in 2016, the Federal Railroad Administration, uh, that's part of the Department of Transportation, had proposed uh, a very similar rule. Uh, it had followed two terrible rail accidents where trains hauling crude oil tanks had derailed and those wrecks had triggered huge explosions uh, that flattened buildings and even killed some residents. Uh, you know, fortunately for a larger number of people, they were in rural areas of uh, Quebec was one crash and North Dakota was another. So that, that was sort of the spark of this um, in, in the name of having better safety, having more staffing. Uh, but in 2019, the FRA under the Trump administration had dismiss, dismissed the regulation. Uh, that was generally seen as a win for the employers, the railroad corporations, and as a loss for the labor unions uh, going by who had testified. So, of course, now we have a new administration in Washington, and the FRA under the Biden administration has essentially brought it back, uh, saying that it's, again, that it's needed for improved safety. So what the proposed rule would do is it would specify, among other things, uh, as we said, that there would be two employees on each train, uh, also the location of those two true crew members, so they'd both be in the locomotive, uh, and it would prohibit the operation of some trains with fewer than two crew members from transporting large amounts of certain hazardous materials. Uh, think about that crude oil. Uh, however, there's also some flexibility in it for safer runs. Uh, it could include exceptions for low-risk operations uh, or for circumstances where there are certain mitigating measures in place. So, of course, better safety helps everyone in logistics, but I know that some parts of the industry are opposed to the pending legislation. You, you talked about some of those before. Uh, exactly. Yep. Um, and, and so far, it looks like uh, folks are essentially lining up on the same sides of the debate as last time. So uh, one group, uh, for an example, that's already pushing back against the proposed regulation is the Association of American Railroads. That's a trade group for rail industry corporations. Uh, and the association called the revived regulation, uh, quote, misguided, uh, and said that it would put freight rail at a competitive disadvantage to other modes of transportation. Uh, they're usually there talking about trucking. Uh, according to the Association of American Railroads, um, other Department of Transportation agencies are working to support greater automation and technology in order to achieve those same safety benefits. Uh, for example, they cited positive train control. What that is, is a technology, uh, a, a suite of technologies 
that can automatically stop a train before certain accidents occur that are generally human related. Uh, and positive train control has been active on US rail networks since the end of 2020. Uh, but again, the, the federal rail administration says this is still needed for better safety. Um, you know, for context over time, the government pointed out that historically major technology breakthroughs have led to a gradual reduction in train crew sizes from about five people staffing each train in the 1960s to about just two people staffing each train by the end of the 1990s. Uh, and now we're getting down toward one. Uh, but, you know, there's plenty more debate to, to be had on this. Uh, the way that federal regulations work is that a new potential regulation like this one has to be published in the Federal Register. And uh, for this one, that happened on Thursday. And that starts the clock on a series of legal steps that will play out over a couple months. Uh, the, one of the first things is that they invite comments on the proposed rule, and those have to be received by September 26th. So plenty more to cover here, and we'll be sure to hear more on the subject as it rolls out. Yep, definitely. We'll keep track of all of that. Thanks, Ben. Yep, glad to. And Victoria, you wrote this week about just how much worse supply chain disruptions have been year over year compared to the recent past. Can you share what you reported? Absolutely. Yes. So uh, supply chain risk monitoring company Resilink has tracked nearly 8,000 disruptive events affecting supply chains in the first half of 2022 alone. And that's a 46% increase compared to the first half of 2021. This information comes from the company's Event Watch platform, which is an artificial intelligence-based tool that gathers information and monitors news on 400 different types of disruptions across something like more than 100 million sources of information. So they're using sources like uh, traditional news outlets, social media, wire service videos, government reports, that kind of thing. Of the events occurring between January and June of this year, more than half of them were serious enough to spur the creation of a war room. And that is a, a virtual platform in Resilink's technology dashboard where customers and suppliers can kind of come together, communicate and collaborate to assess um, and resolve the disruptions that they're dealing with. The report also identified the top five disruptive events so far in 2022. Uh, the top five categories are factory fires, mergers and acquisitions, um, a business sale, leadership transitions, and sort of general factory disruptions, which include, uh, which could include anything from a full or partial shutdown to labor disputes, accidents, and so forth. Interestingly, factory fires are up 131% year over year, um, and, the and Resilink says that puts 2022 on track for the most fires ever reported. Um, they say that trend is being driven by gaps in regulatory and process execution, so sort of administrative stuff, but also because of a shortage of skilled labor in warehouses. And that's something, of course, we're very familiar with. We've been reporting uh, quite a bit on the labor challenges across the whole industry um, over the past two years, but even, even leading up to the pandemic. Right. We certainly have been. Victoria, what else did the data reveal? Well, as you might expect, geopolitical events continue to drive supply chain disruptions as well. And those kinds of events rose more than 500% year over year in the first half of this year. The Russia-Ukraine war was a top disruptor in the first half of the year, um, primarily because of the sanctions that we saw placed on Russia and production shutdowns as a result in the, in the region. Um, those things are driving what um, Resilink and others are referring to as unprecedented commodity and raw material shortages, um, which unfortunately are things they say we're likely to see continue 
uh, through the end of the year. Geographically, North America experienced the most disruptions between January and June, accounting for more than 40% of the total alerts issued in the first half of the year, uh, alerts in the Resolink system, that is. And they also found that life sciences, healthcare, high-tech, and automotive industries have been the uh, segments most affected um, by disruptions. I should also note that these um, these are early findings that, that the company released, and they say they're going to publish even more data in an official half-year report that will be out later this summer. So that'll be interesting to see what they say in that report as well. But as we've seen in the past year, it does not take much for even a small disruption to ripple throughout our supply chains. That we'll is on. true. Yep, mm -hmm. we'll keep on it. Thanks, Victoria. Yep. You're welcome. We encourage listeners to go to dcvelocity.com for more on these and other supply chain stories and check out the podcast notes section for some direct links on the topics that we discussed today. And again, our thanks to Chris Shimoda for being our guest today. We welcome your comments on this topic and our other stories. You can email us at podcast at dcvelocity.com. We also encourage you to subscribe to Logistics Matters at your favorite podcast platform. Our new episodes are uploaded each Friday. And speaking of subscribing, we encourage you to check out our new sister podcast series, Supply Chain in the Fast Lane. It's co-produced by the Council of Supply Chain Management Professionals and Supply Chain Quarterly. Subscribe to Supply Chain in the Fast Lane wherever you get your podcasts. And a reminder, the Logistics Matters is sponsored by Honeywell Intelligrated. Be sure to check out the Honeywell Intelligrated on the Move podcast on Apple, Spotify, or Google. All episodes of their podcast series are also posted at sps.honeywell.com slash onthemovepodcasts. You can also find Honeywell Intelligrated on LinkedIn and Twitter using the hashtag at Intelligrated. We'll be back again next week with another edition of Logistics Matters when we'll discuss new research that shows how the looming recession could impact supply chains. Be sure to join us. Until then, stay safe and have a great week.